It's really awesome to see everybody today. Um, this morning we're going to be reading from Psalm 3. If you would, join me. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, you are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, and you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. John was close on the age. It's 53. John, 53, so that is the number. It is certainly my pleasure to be able to preach on this particular psalm uh, today. Uh, it is, I always regret saying that something's a favorite. I mean, how can you have a favorite amongst uh, God's inspired and their word? It should all be our favorite. Uh, but there are certain things that speak to us more than others do at various times in our lives. And this particular psalm is, one that everyone should uh, should circle, should highlight, should dog ear that page to go back to, uh, a psalm to remember, a psalm to consider on the dark days that occur in our lives. We know that two weeks ago that we preached, uh, that John preached on Psalm 1, the righteous and the wicked, those, the, the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, uh, just a reminder in Psalm 1, 1, how blessed is the one the man, the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. That man, the one who delights in the law of the Lord. We will see what that looks like today. We will see what that looks like in the Psalm of David today. Last week I preached through Psalm 2, a prophetic psalm about, uh, about the coming of the Messiah, about the enthronement of the King, of the world, who would be Jesus himself, the king of the universe, uh, spoke about that and how it is foolish for the nations to rage, for the nations to go against God. It is quite fascinating when I think about Psalm 2 of last week, just a little aside, uh, about the overturning of Roe versus Wade this week. There are many in this audience today that do not know a time when Roe versus Wade did not exist. Uh, there is many in this audience who would remember the time that it came into existence and the slaughter of babies came into be mainstream uh, that would have thought that it never 
would cease to exist. Yet in God's providence, he has struck down Roe versus Wade, rightfully so. We, a good reminder is, is that God's ways are not our ways, right? We must always remember that. So we come into this psalm today. Uh, this is a psalm of David. Uh, 70 plus psalms in the Psalter are attributed to David. Uh, that he is the writer, the author, and this is one of those. Many of those psalms of David would just say that he was the writer. This psalm gives us the little uh, snippet. It tells us on the occasion of this psalm that David is fleeing from his son Absalom. We can find much out about who Absalom is in his son in 2 Samuel, but I'll give a brief overview of the situation so we can get the context of why this psalm is written. Absalom had uh, one of David's sons had a sister named Tamar. Amnon, another son of David, rapes Tamar. You can find the story about that. He was desirous of Tamar because of her beauty. Uh, he was also desirous because of the sinfulness of man of the fact that uh, he desired something that he shouldn't have. And he rapes Tamar. Her brother Absalom is naturally upset over this and plots and has Amnon killed. So far so good, right? Because of this fratricide, the killing a brother, killing another brother, uh, Absalom flees or leaves or is driven out of the city of Jerusalem and goes and lives in a foreign land for three years. David finally invites Absalom back into the city and then proceeds to ignore him for two years. Now, a couple of things about Absalom. You would read the scripture and you'd find out that Absalom was probably close to being David's favorite son, his favorite child. We also find out that Absalom was exceedingly handsome, that he was well-liked by the people, that he was tall, uh, he, was, uh, he had the kingly features. There's a specific part in the scripture in, in 2 Samuel, I believe it is, where it talks about how that once a year that, that, that Absalom would have his hair cut, and the weight of his hair was 200 shekels, is what it says. It makes a specific point about the looks of Absalom. But during this two-year period of time, when David is, he is back in the city, but living uh, away from David, uh, and David is not conversing with his son, that Absalom is gaining, gaining support of the people. He's bringing the people into his camp. He's having the people, uh, he, not only was he like, but he's even more like now. And this is what he's doing. He's running a shadow campaign against King David. King David's much older now. King David wouldn't be the man he was when he was a young king. Uh, he's getting long in the tooth, as some would say. And because of this, because of the support he's gathering, right? Now I'm giving very 
high overview of the situation, just so we can dive into the psalm and get the, the background from it. Uh, because of this support, then, Absalom makes a move against his father. Even after his father summons for him to, to come back to what we would say to speak with him, to be at the court, he makes a move against his father. The, David finds out about this. Uh, he finds out that there's a plot to kill him, that his son is plotting to kill him. This becomes the occasion of this psalm. And we want to look at that in context, right? To we, the first thing we want to see is we, we, we would, as, uh, as Eric did, he's read the psalm. So we read the psalm. Now we want to explain what's going on in the psalm, right? And then we want to see how that applies to us today. Are there truths within this psalm that are, uh, that are eternal? And the answer is yes, there are. What we will find when we study this Psalm 3 is that there's three things that we will learn about our walk with God. There are the way things look. Then we'll learn about the way things truly are. And then we'll learn about the strength we get in the promises of the Lord and the sure hope that we find in the promises of the Lord. So here's that Psalm. It says it might have the title for you, the morning prayer of trust in God. Uh, and that's pretty good. Hence, we should circle it. We should dog ear it. Uh, we should refer to it often. I would just give this as a little aside when we talk about the Psalms that uh, John Calvin said that the Psalms are the anatomy of the soul. And we'll be able to see that here. We'll be able to see the, the cry out of the heart, the emotion. Uh, Martin Luther would say that it is a fine handbook, the, the entirety of the Psalms, uh, the Psalter is a fine handbook of Christian living. And I think we'll find that here too. David pursued by his son. It says in verse 1 of Psalm 3, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising against me. Those people that would have supported him are now supporting his son. The people that were in his camp are now supporting the son who's seeking to kill him. He, he has a small group or a cadre of people that are with him as he has fled the city. We know from 2 Samuel uh, 17, uh, let's go to, yeah, 2 Samuel 17, 9, for example. We'll just get a, just get a snapshot of what is going on in, in, in David's life right now. Uh, it says in 17.9, Behold, he, that is David, has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place. So this great king has fled the city with a small band of supporters, and he is hiding out amongst the, amongst the caves and the mountains of Israel. He has left behind the trappings of royalty, and he is living like an animal out in the field, seeking to escape his son. Seeking to escape sure death from his son. Everything he has known, all the trust that he had before and the people that he knew in his nation is gone. He has woken up one morning. He's gone to bed at night, one night, secure in his kingship. And he's woken up the next morning and being driven out of the city because his own son is seeking to kill him. 
This is a situation many of us have not had. That our own child is seeking to kill us. But this is the situation that King David has. And he has fled out to the countryside. He has fled to the mountains, to the hills, to the deserts of the areas surrounding Jerusalem. So one cannot, and remember this is the look of these first two verses, are the way things look. This is what it looks like from the outside. We're a person to fly over top and see what is happening. It looks like this. My adversaries have increased. Many are rising against me. Countless numbers are seeking to destroy me. Everything is turned upside down against me. Is the cry of David's heart when he says this. The son that has killed one of his other sons, the favorite son now that he has finally brought back into the fold, is now has turning the city against him, is turning his nation against him. Many are my adversaries. Many are those who are seeking to destroy me. The once popular David is now being overtaken by the exceedingly popular Absalom. The good-looking, tall, king-like Absalom. The one who people, who he has developed relationships with the people, uh, trying to usurp the throne of David. He has grown in popularity, and David has decreased in popularity. David's feelings are on full display here. It says in verse 2 of Psalm 3, Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. This is the way things look. This is just without consideration of anything else. This is how it feels to David. This is what it seems like to David. To take a short account of everything around him, if I were to, if he were to write things down on a piece of paper, it doesn't look good. I have no supporters, except for these few that are around me. Uh, my kingship is in, uh, I'm, they might still refer to me as a king, but it's obvious that I'm running out here in the desert, in the mountains, in the hills, in the caves, that I'm not. And my son is seeking to kill me. Don't forget that. His own flesh and blood is seeking to kill him. There is another way to describe this that from a quick perspective is that he feels alone. That he is by himself. That there is none that are out there and were he to listen to all those around him, even those supporters of him, would probably be saying, look how many people are pursuing you. Where, how far away do we have to run to get away with this? How far away do we have to get so that we ourselves are not killed with you? Where can we possibly hide from your son in the armies that he has seeking to kill you? The situation is bleak. The storm is on the horizon. The ship is being torn apart. And there is no apparent salvation for David. This one man who seemed to have God's favor has seemingly fallen out of God's favor. If we were to stop right there and to consider what is going on. 
But we also must remember that we would consider David a very mature believer. He has not reached this age by only feeding on the milk of God's word. Right? He has not only been to children's church and learned what he's learned about God. He has not sat and been satisfied with just knowing a little bit about who the Lord is and what the Lord does. No, David has become mature, even though he is a great sinner like we all are. He has become mature in the knowledge of who God is and the promises of God. He is aware that the way things look aren't necessarily the way things are in truthfulness. You see, one of the lessons we could take away from here is, is that you will always be tossed about by the storms of life if you choose to be an immature believer. If you choose to say, this is all I need of God, I don't want to learn anymore. I don't want to dive into the toughness of the Scripture. I don't want to consider... Uh, I don't want to consider the tough things about what it says about God. But see, David isn't like that. David has known from the beginning, right? When it says when he was a shepherd, right? That he would trust in the Lord. Even as a shepherd, that he, when, when a bear or a lion stole one of the flock of his sheep, that he went out after them and grabbed them by the beard and struck them down to rescue the sheep. And it says, because God was with me. And God was with him when he faced Goliath. And God was with him when he made mistakes in transporting the ark back to Jerusalem. And God would still be with him when he sinned with Bathsheba. David knows God. And he also knows how weak we are when we trust in ourselves. And yes, from the outside, the way things look, the situation looks bleak. And it looks like he's alone. And it looks like he's been abandoned. And it looks like that those who say, look, there is no God. There is no God to save you. That's what they're saying to your soul. Look at you. You have fled from your home. You have fled from your temple. You have fled from your kingly trappings. So it's obvious that there's no God who will save you. Because that's the way it looks to the godless. That's the way it looks to the pagans. That's the way it looks to those who put their trust in the frame of men. From the outside, it would look like A, there is no God, or B, that David isn't part of God's plan. That he is simply, he, is, uh, he has seemingly found himself on the outside. This one that was blessed by the Lord has seemingly found himself outside of God's purview. But we do remember Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Therefore, we cannot necessarily use the things we see with our eyes and the things we think with our emotions, because remember, our hearts are desperately wicked above all things, Jeremiah 17, 9, Right? to ascertain the way things truly are. 
That can't be what we observe with our eyes, cannot be the only thing we use for determining what God's work in is, what God's plan is. Luckily, he has given us a book that tells us the way things are. David himself will acknowledge the way things truly are in these next few verses. Verses uh, 3 through 6. He has spoken from the emotive part of his soul, the humanness of his soul, that, that part that 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 part that, that even ourselves as mature believers, that sometimes we have questions when things, when we get the phone call we don't like, when we get the diagnosis we don't like, when the job isn't going right, when I seemingly have no friends, we sometimes trust in ourselves and say, where is God? But David knows better because he is mature in knowing who God is. And he says in verse 3 of Psalm 3, he says this, But you, the great conjunctions of the Bible, pay attention to everyone that is there. Because when you see a conjunction like but or and or therefore, you better pay attention to the words that are coming afterwards. Because this picture that we had here was, this is the way it looks, but God. But God. Not but man, but God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are a shield about me. Now we could gloss over that verse. We could just dance over and say, I know what a shield is. A shield protects me. But we don't consider what the words are saying here because he's not just speaking about a shield as we know it. Because the shield that I know, when I would have those leather straps, if it'd be wood or something covered in hide, and I would put my arm through it, and I would hold it like this, because the obvious attacks are coming from the front, and there's where I fend them off from. But David doesn't say that. It says, you are a shield about me. Or in your translation, it might say, round about me. Everywhere around me. Not just in front of me. Not just where I can see the attacks coming from. But all about me. You have set yourself, God, you have set yourself as my protection. All about me. From the places that I can't even see the attacks coming from. From the things I will never even know that you have protected me from. You have set yourself up in that position for me. You are not just a shield where I can see the obvious attack from my son Absalom. But you are all about me and have always been all about me. You see, this is the way things, the way it looks like to the outside world. But this is the way things truly are. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, round about me, everywhere, over, above, around me. This is who God is. This great conjunction. But you, O Lord, I know the way it looks over here. I know the way it looks to outside observers. I know the fools that say there is no God. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, everywhere about me. He is not just, he is not just imbibed the milk of childlike belief, but he has grown in maturity. He has agonized in his belief in trusting in God. He has worked it out through his life, what it means to believe in the Lord. And we see here is this exposition of God's sovereignty. 
this shield about him, not merely a buckler on an arm, but all about him. And it is God's shield that is about him. It is God's protection that provides him. It is all-encompassing that is about him. And I know it looks bad, but I know you are with me, Lord. That is what David is saying. Not only that, he uses this peculiar phrase, which is probably lost in the United States today because we don't understand what royalty means or kingship means. It says, but you are the shield about me. You are my glory and the one who lifts my head. David penned this. He knows exactly what he is saying when he says this. What does it mean to lift the head? It has to do with kingship and royalty. That if you would have an accused party would, 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 would come before the king for judgment, declaring their innocence in the matter, they would supplicate before the king, the one who is sovereign over them. They would be on their knees with their face down to the ground. They would plead their case before the king, before the sovereign, before them. And the king would do one of two things. If he put his foot on their neck, it would mean they were guilty. And they were subject to the appropriate punishment. Probably execution. But, if the king found them innocent, the king himself would come off the throne and get on his knees and lift the person's head themselves. To show that they were saved. To show that they were innocent. To show that they were protected. To show that they were not guilty. And that is what David is saying here. All those around me claim that I am guilty. But you, O oh Lord, you are the one that lifts my head. You are my salvation. You are the one that provides salvation for me. You are the one that I trust in. And I do not trust in the frame of men to save me. I trust in you, O Lord. You are the one, God, Yahweh, you are the one who restores the sinner. You are the one who has restored me continually. You are the one that has answered my repentant prayers constantly. You are the one that has surrounded me as a shield about me you are the one that lifts me up as one that will be righteous before you at the second coming. It is a look at God's sovereignty. It is a king himself acknowledging the true king. It is a king himself, who, King David, who is acknowledging that there is one true king, and that is Yahweh himself. He is the one who will restore me. I don't know what that looks like, David would say, but I trust in what the Lord is going to do, that the Lord will be, the, the Lord will, will establish it for His own glory, for the Lord's own glory, for Yahweh's own glory. It is interesting that we would see in that combination of those verses right there in 3, the shield and the lifting of the head that we would find in Genesis 15.1, uh, similar terms that have been given to Abram uh, at the promise that he that, that, that the Lord that Yahweh gave to Abram 15:1 it says this after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying do not feel I am a shield to you 
your reward shall be very great. Or turn to Deuteronomy 33.29. If you flip forward there in your, in your scripture just a little bit, uh, 33.29, another similar verse. We're just kind of dovetailing in, looking at some of these things uh, to show the consistency of the scripture. Uh, and it says there, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help, the sword of your majesty, so your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread upon their high places. The Lord is the protector of his people. David knows that the Lord is his protector. David could affirm uh, Romans 8.28 that as we know the, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. David could affirm that with confidence, even though it's many centuries from being written. This is the Lord that David himself knows. David knows that even if the good does not look like good in our purview, it is the good for those who believe in the Lord and the best thing that could be happening to that believer at this moment. So whatever is going on in the life, including David running and hiding at the moment, is the best thing that could be happening to him as a believer in the Lord. And the same goes for us. Whatever we are currently going through, whatever our current situation is, is the best thing for us to be happening, even if we don't particularly care for it. It is the best thing for us because God has ordained it. To happen that way. So we have the God that is the shield. We have the God that is doing all things for his purposes. We have the God himself who will lift the head, who will restore the sinner who believes in him. David speaking truth, not only, uh, not only on what he knows about God, but what he knows about ancient practices too. Look at Genesis 40, verse 13. If you would, as before we move off this, these particular verses, Genesis 40, verse 13. Uh, you'll recognize this as a story of uh, Joseph. That Joseph himself has, uh, he has been wrongfully accused uh, of, the, of the rape of a, an official's wife. He has been thrown in jail. And then we, we have this, and within three days it says, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. An example of that lifting of the head and that restoration that we get. One thing to keep in mind, the maturity of David as he speaks to this, remember we had what it looks like to the outside, and this is what it truly is. In verse 4, it says this, I was crying to the Lord, of Psalm chapter 3, verse 4, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. David demonstrating the trust he has in God. The, the trust that the Lord will answer his prayers. That the trust that, 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 that even in the darkest day, that the Lord is hearing him. That the Lord will sustain him. Matthew 7, 7 would say in, 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 in confirmation, he says that, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. 
Or James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He must sing praises. In other words, the, the Lord does not hear the prayers of the wicked, but the Lord does hear the prayers of those that are found in him. Doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked, Psalm 5, 5, uh, Psalm 5, 5 and Psalm 7.11, but he does hear those that put their trust in him. David has put his trust in the Lord, and he will answer him. And then we have this great, phenomenal phrase, uh, one of the absolute best ones in the scripture of itself. In verse 5, it says, of Psalm 3, it says, I lay down and slept, I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. A very simple phrase. Another one we could just read over because we're excited to get to the end. And we don't realize what is happening here. The Lord, when I go to sleep, it is referred to in previous history, sleep is referred to as the little death. It is the closest thing to life that we get as death. When we close our eyes and our mind shuts off and our body keeps running, there is nothing we do to, to maintain that. That is all in God's work. When I lay down, I am putting my full trust in God that I will wake up. And guess what? If I don't wake up as a believer, I wake up in His presence. To be absent of the bodies, to be present with the Lord. I lay down and I slept. This is David running from a son who's killing him. And he says, I lay down and I slept. This is the level of trust I have. I awoke. The Lord sustains me. The Lord sustains me. I might not have the trappings of my office right now. I might not have the servants and the concubines and the wine and the food right now, but the Lord sustains me in this cave. When I put my head on a rock and fall asleep and I wake up, it is the Lord who has done that. Nothing of man has done that, including myself. I trust in the Lord that He does this. I have taken on the little death of sleep and the Lord has sustained me and woken me up. The same Lord who puts his shield about me. The same Lord who lifts my head and restores me. This is the Lord that he trusts in. I lay down and slept and I woke up. The Lord sustains me. I've taken that verse and I've put an exclamation point at the end of that. That's the way it is in my scripture. That's the way I want to remember that. And because of all these things, because of these previous statements that he made, remember where he started, but you, O Lord, and he points out, the Lord is his shield, the Lord is the one who restores, the Lord is the one who listens to his prayers, the Lord is the one who sustains him. Because of these four things, in verse 6 of Psalm 3 it says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people, of those that are moving against me, of the armies that are coming for me, of the son that seeks to kill me, I will not be afraid of them because you are the one that sustains my life and my life and my death are in your hands as you desire it to be. Because my life is not my own, my life is owned by the Lord. These ones that have set themselves about me, these thousands who have set themselves about me, I will not fear, he says. That's what he's saying. Whatever should happen to me, I am in your hands, O Lord. You are the one that has me. You are the one that will take me from death in the battlefield and put me, restore me into the mansions of heaven. 
into the translucent streets of gold. I trusted that. And we can put the exclamation point here because I have matured in my belief. I have not just stayed in children's Sunday school. I have read the Scriptures and I have trusted in what the Lord has done throughout history. I have trusted in the promises of Abraham. I have trusted in what has been done through Exodus to save my people. I've trusted in what you have said. I've not believed what man has said, but I believe what you say through your inspired and infallible and inerrant word. So that's the way things are. It's the way things look, but the way things truly are, are here. We don't have enough time to go into it, but I would recommend you go to Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. This, of course, is, uh, uh, is about uh, God being the one in control. Uh, I would recommend that to you when you get a chance. And now as we come into verses 7 and 8, the closing verses of this psalm, Psalm 3, now we see the, 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 the strength that David has in the promises that God has given. It is the, the sure hope that David has in the Lord and what he will do. It is the trust that he has in whatever God will do and whatever God does and however long his life is, is the best for him. take a moment and just say it was uh, I think it was John Bunyan who said that that the believer those who believe in Jesus should make uh, the thoughts of their dying day their daily friend we hold on loosely to this life and when it comes to the time for our death we, 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 we accept it graciously and happily because at that moment when we pass from this life to the next, sin will be done in our lives. We will no longer struggle against that sin. It will be gone for us. In moments, the Lord will have taken that away, never to be remembered for us, other than the fact that we remember how great the Lord was to sustain us and to restore us while we are on this planet and that we are now with Him in that heavenly realm. So we see here in 7 and 8, Arise, O Lord, save me, O God. This, is, uh, this, is a, this isn't a, uh, a request that may or may not come true. This is sure hope that it is absolutely come true because for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. And when we see the smitten of the enemies on the cheek, it means you have put them to shame. You have shamed them for what they have done, for the lies that they have told. I would think about Jonathan Edwards, uh, the great Puritan, that when he was falsely accused in his congregation, uh, that he refused to defend himself. Even his friends said, you must defend yourself. And he says, no, I will not do it. That is the Lord's work to defend me, not my job. My job of defense is only from a prideful state. And that's how Jonathan Edwards ends up uh, going from a, a, a large church to being a minister to a small population of Indians. Uh, and it wasn't until 11 years later, 15 years later, that the person who falsely accused him came before the congregation of that church and admitted to the lies that he told about this man. 
that he took that shame upon himself about the lies he told about Jonathan Edwards. For you see here, David himself is trusting in the Lord to put the shame in those who have lied about him. To shame those who have falsely accused him. To realize that revenge itself is, the, is, is for the Lord himself. To seek revenge on our own is purely from pride. Is purely to uh, is to purely to lift ourselves up in front of man, not to lift ourselves up in front of God. This is God's work to do this. And then when He says, "You have shattered the teeth of the wicked," in other words, you have made them powerless. You are the one when you shatter the teeth, you have made them powerless. They can no longer attack me. They no longer have an effect on me. That you have done it yourself, Lord, for your good purposes. It is that monergistic work of God in restoration and salvation that it is Him alone that does it. We could read the verses out of Lamentations 3.30. Let Him give His cheek to the smiter. Let Him be filled with reproach. Hosea 13.4 Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except for me, for there is no Savior besides me. And we jump into verse 8 about that. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. There is no Savior besides the Lord. There is no, you will not find salvation in any man or king or nation or politician or friend or boss or family member. Salvation only belongs to the Lord. Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Through the Lord Jesus, David himself, <coughs> as is obvious through his writings in the psalm, looking forward to the time of the Messiah, who we would not even know his name, we could easily go to Psalm 110 and various other ones to see that. That he is trusting in the promises of God that at some point in the future that the Messiah will come, the Savior, that David would be saved by the Messiah himself, even though the Messiah has not yet come. We would see in uh, uh, Romans chapter 3 that there that time that uh, sins were left unpunished until the time was right for the Lord. We would also see in 1 Peter that the prophets and the patriarchs longed to look at the time when the Messiah would come when they made their prophecies, yet they were doing this for them at that time when Jesus would come. Revelation 7.10, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 19.1, after these things I heard something like the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So we have this psalm that we have went through, a short psalm. Again, I recommend that you circle it, remember it, and on dark days you read it, and on bright days you read it too and remind yourself that the way things look aren't necessarily the way things are. That we trust in the Lord as our shield about us. That He is the one who restores us that He is the one who answers our prayers, that He is the one that sustains us, and therefore whom shall we fear other than the Lord Himself? Philippians 2.12, we would work out our faith with fear and trembling before the Lord, not before men. We put our trust 
in Yahweh. We put our trust in the salvation that has been bought through the blood of the Lamb, His Son, on the cross. Because like David, we will not be swayed even if there are ten thousands that come against us or ten millions that say that there is no God. Because we know the truth. That we stand in the salvation provided by the King of all kings. That we, we stand in the salvation and the righteousness that has been provided to us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one through whom and by whom all things were created. I would end on that Find him, my hope is built on nothing less. If we consider these words, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. It is the full trust in our Lord and Savior that alleviates our fear, just like it did for David when he's being pursued by his son Absalom. I would ask that you consider these scriptures, that you consider what it says about our Lord, our restoration, the one who saves us. I would ask that you consider where you stand with your Lord and Savior. Because remember, He is Lord and Savior. You don't put Him in that position. He is in that position. To die without Jesus is to die to eternal damnation. If you have any questions about who Jesus is and you're standing before the Lord, I ask that you see there's a number of us here today, including our visiting pastor, Tim, who would be more than glad to speak with you uh, uh, about that. Uh, it, is, it would be a foolish pastor to, to sit in front of a church regardless of the size and claim to know that everyone is saved. Right? So it is a message of gospel hope. We see a clear gospel preaching here by David himself, trusting in the promises of God. We too trust in those promises. I ask that if you do not know Jesus, that you pray to the Lord to know Jesus, to, to have him as your Lord and Savior. That's all about our heads. Father God, uh, we come before you. We ask that we come before you in humility not in pridefulness, not in the work of our hands, but in the work that you have done since all time, that that promise that you gave that there would be a Savior and that Savior is your Son, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ, that we would put our trust in Him, that when we feel the fear of man upon us, that things aren't going right, that we look to you, Lord, that we remember this psalm, that you are our shield about us, that you are the one that lifts our head, that you are the one that sustains us, that you are the one that answers our prayers, that our prayers would always be that you are glorified, God, that you're glorified in everything that we do. Please be with us throughout this day and throughout our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand and join us to close out and I'll worship your song.